2 Samuel, chapter 20, this is the word of God. And there happened to be a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bitri, a Benjamite, and he blew a trumpet and said, We have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So every man of Israel departed David and followed Sheba, the son of Bitri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. Now David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and put them in seclusion and supported them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. And the king said to Amasa, Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days, and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. So Joab's men with the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and all the mighty men went out after him, and they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fastened on its sheath at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. Then Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand. And he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again. Thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bitri. Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. But Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came upon him halted. When he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bitri. And he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel and Beth Macha and all the Barites. Baratites, so they were gathered together and also went after Sheba. Then they came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maacha, and they cast up a siege mound against the city, and it stood by the rampart. And all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman cried out from the city, Here, here! Please say to Joab, come nearby that I may speak with you. When he had come near to her, the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. 
Then she said to him, Hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I am listening. So she spoke, saying, They used to talk in former times, saying, They shall surely seek guidance at Abel. And so they would end disputes. I am among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And Joab answered and said, Far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not so. But a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba the son of Bitri by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. So the woman said to Joab, Watch, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman in her wisdom went to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba the son of Bitri and threw it out to Joab. Then he blew the trumpet, and they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. And Joab was over all the army of Israel. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Adoram was in charge of the revenue. Jehoshaphat, the son of Elihud, was recorder. Shiva was scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira, the Jerite, was the chief minister under David. This is the word of Almighty God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for being the God who speaks. We also struggle with violent and discouraging passages like the one we look at today. We ask that your spirit would make it worthwhile to our attention, that we would receive it as your very word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the the commentators had a comment about uh, this passage. He he said, another rebellion and more violence. It's kind of boring by now. And and maybe you feel that way. With 2 Samuel, it feels like chapter after chapter after chapter. And for me, even more so trying to preach on it than when I just read it one chapter at a time day by day in my own devotions, because what's new to say? More violence, more people with egos, more people trying to have their way instead of Yahweh's way in Israel, more people rebelling against David or pretending to be for David, but not listening to David, and so on and so forth. It it can get a little tiresome and uh, might seem hard to say, well, what, what new thing could we apply to ourselves uh, from the word here? There, there is good news, and that is that chapter 20 is the end of a section that began in chapter 9. And that is that whole saga of David's uh, sin and the rebellions that flow out of that sin. And so, starting next week, we have other issues that we turn to. But at least here, we've ended a segment. But we still have this passage to think about. This segment ends 23 through 26 
with the conclusion. And, and in essence, with the conclusion at the end of chapters 9 through 20, the conclusion in essence says, good news, despite everything, the kingdom of David is still secure. God had made promises to David earlier in the, in the book. A lot of things have come up that would seem to have the potential at least to drive David from his throne, to break and shatter God's promises on the ground. But at the end of our chapter, David is on the throne. It's a little ominous though, isn't it? The way that's said. David may be on the throne, but Joab is over the army. And of course, we're going to have some issues there in our chapter itself. Well, as I I gaze at this chapter, a a couple of things stand out. One of them is that conclusion with that ominous note, Joab in charge of the army, but the positive note, the kingdom of David is secure. I think there's two other things that really pop off the page uh, to me in this. Uh, One of those is the, the use of this phrase, wisdom. We have another wise woman. Now, the last time there was a wise woman, it was also a conversation with Joab. And that was uh, back when Joab was trying to figure out, how do I convince David to accept Absalom back to Jerusalem and back uh, to to be near him? And he got a wise woman to go and convince David. Uh, But there are a lot of other passages in Samuel that have to do with wisdom, whether they use the phrase or not. Often they do. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, for example, uh, gives you references to an even dozen, as he calls it, 12 passages that are very clearly uh, wisdom-oriented. And that's just with 2 Samuel. I think 1 Samuel has quite a few more, as well as a wonderful one or two with Jonathan that are godly wisdom. But in 2 Samuel, often the, the wisdom that we're shown is earthy wisdom, that's, a, that's my nice way of trying to say it. it. It's worldly wisdom sometimes, worldly being fleshly, bad, but sometimes it's just earthy. It's, it's not sinful. It's not anti-God. It's, just, it's not necessarily biblically driven. It's just worldly wisdom. And it, it may or may not be a bad or a good thing in this situation, but we're being drawn to this idea that there's an emphasis on wisdom, and I'm going to bring us back to that at the end. The other thing that I think pops off the page looking at this chapter, other than the gore, of course, but, but the other thing, the structural thing, is the trumpet blasts. Uh, Joab had blown a trumpet after Absalom was killed a couple chapters earlier. Now, Sheba blows a trumpet at the beginning of the chapter, And Joab blows a trumpet at the end of the chapter, kind of rounds out the rebellion. It starts with a trumpet, it ends with a trumpet. But in in 2 Samuel, these trumpet blasts aren't just about rebellion or the end of a war. They are the action of someone who is seeking to cause others to follow him. So Joab kills Absalom and he blows the trumpet. All Israel is to follow him in no longer killing other Israelites, right? That's the, but the idea is follow me in not killing other Israelites. 
Sheba blows the trumpet and all Israel abandons David and goes to their homes. It's follow me in rebellion or cessation from David. And Joab again at the end, follow me in letting anyone who followed Sheba go home free. So it's this idea of follow me when the trumpet is blasted. And sadly, time and again in 2 Samuel, it's not, it's not the best people who are blowing the trumpets. It's, it's a rare thing to hear of David blowing a trumpet. In fact, as far as my memory serves, I don't know that he does blow a trumpet in 2 Samuel. That would be a nice thing to hear, but I don't think we see it. If we do, you can remind me this coming week. Uh, it, it's always bloodthirsty, rebellious people who blow the trumpet, like Sheba and Joab. So let's, let's think about that, because to me, then, my heart in this chapter is aching for another trumpet. One that's not blown by them, but it's blown by David. And, and we don't get that. And as we look at a chapter like this, it's violent, and, and it feels worlds away from us, and yet our culture around us and the church in our day is filled with uh, violence, at the least violent words spoken against each other, and uh, it's filled with a lot of rebellion, and so we're in a very confusing and frustrating world as well, and as we look at this chapter, we might ache for David to blow a trumpet, But as we look at it in our own day, we might say, and we're still waiting. We're still waiting for that trumpet blast that we read about in 1 Corinthians 15 together this evening. So with with that more positive future thought in our minds, let's think about some of this text. We have Sheba blow the trumpet. When does he blow the trumpet? problem with me taking three weeks off it was a month ago when we looked at the previous verses but in the previous verses david isn't even back from being driven out of israel uh, jerusalem yet he's on his way back to his throne and judah and israel start fighting we ought to have preeminence with david no we, we ought to have it we're his relatives well we're his relatives too there's more of us but as the chapter ended the words of the men of Judah were fiercer. Uh, in other words, they, they were more frightening. So that's where the conversation ended. Um, but, but that, remember, happens among people who all had been in rebellion against David ten minutes earlier. They rebelled against David. David's response that very day as he's coming back to Jerusalem is, no one shall be killed today. So they'd all just received mercy. And what is their response to it? I want praise and glory as well as mercy. I want to be put in a higher place than you, even though we just both received the same mercy. And it's in that context of bickering that Sheba steps up, blows a trumpet, and tries to be the next Absalom. Of course, the difference is we're not told anything about him. Absalom, remember, he was Mr. Israel. Mr. Universe, he was the tallest in the land, the most gorgeous hair, that kind of language that you had of Saul as well, that, uh, you know, he was the most beautiful person in Israel. That was said of Saul, not the most beautiful man, most beautiful person. 
And Absalom may not have that phrase used, but it's the same idea. He's Mr. Universe. Sheba's just Sheba. We don't know what he looked like. But the fact that it's not said indicates to us this is a pathetic attempt. This guy is not the next Absalom. And yet he thinks he's going to take advantage of this. And don't we know this, that both politically and in the church, there are always people who are ready to take advantage of divisive times. If there is any division in the church of Christ, there's always someone who's willing to step in into that gap, who's been waiting for it maybe their whole lives, who wants the power and the praise, and now's the moment to grasp it. It doesn't even require us wanting to be in office or an official leadership thing in the church. Sometimes it's much more subtle than that, but we want to be recognized, and when everyone else is fighting, now is the moment to grab that. That's Sheba's idea. Long and the short of it is, it doesn't really work, does it? He blasts the trumpet, all Israel goes home, but we find him travel all the way to the northern border of Israel and hide in a city, and no one seems to be with him there. So... This man thought he was going to start the next rebellion. And all he accomplished was getting people to go home and not serve David. But he didn't actually raise a massive army. Do the the geographical thing, look it up in in a map, and you'll find it's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. He started off outside of Jerusalem. He traveled the whole country, and all he had for it was anyone we're not told. It's a, it's a big failure. But that doesn't mean he didn't cause David some trial in the meantime. Now, uh, that, that's the first trumpet blast. Now, thrown in with that first trumpet blast is an aside about David's concubines. And this is a nice thing for the Holy Spirit to do since the, there was no detail of this earlier, right? We were told that David left certain concubines in his home to take care of it when he had to run. And then we are told what Absalom did to those concubines as a power play, as a way to shame David, his father, and as a way to seek to consolidate power in the realm. It was something pagan kings would do. They would take the wives and concubines of the previous king and make a show of it. And uh, Absalom did this. Well, these women are still alive. What does David do? He comes home, and the first thing we're told when he gets back to Jerusalem, I think this shows priority. It shows how he viewed these women. The first thing he does is not throw a feast because he's back on the throne. The first thing he does is establish a home and a uh, a support system for these women. Now, it it can be read negatively in verse 3. He shut them up till the day of their death, living in widowhood. And sometimes commentators will take that and say, you know, they they were little better than prisoners for the rest of their lives and see how David didn't really care for them. That's taking it the most negative way we can. And David's a sinner, so maybe. But, But the more positive angle would be this. Almost any pagan king in David's day would have killed those women. Because... If you get rid of them, someone else could take one of them as a wife 
and try to use that for a power play later on, see, I'm married to David's concubine. So most pagan kings would kill them because you don't want that happening, but you also don't want them around to disgrace you in your court. But David doesn't do either of those things. He has a nice house built for them, perhaps with a a garden all around it that they could uh, work in. We're not even being told here necessarily that they couldn't go out in public or that they couldn't attend worship at the temple. uh, I'm sorry, the, the tabernacle at that point. What we're being told is that they had shelter, provision. David did whatever he could to guard them against public scorn and slander and uh, things like that. And when we read that he didn't go into them, we're not even being told he didn't spend time with them. We're being told something technical, remember. That phrase in the Old Testament means David didn't have sexual relationship with them again after his son had defiled them. So it's a sign of respect for them, and it's not necessarily saying he doesn't allow them in his presence. Maybe they were still allowed in the courtroom. Maybe they still had a place at feasts. We're not being told one way or the other. So we, we have to be cautious that we not, on the one hand, assume the worst, and I've just presented you with the best possibility, and maybe it was somewhere in the middle. But these women are not forgotten by the Holy Spirit, notice. They're mentioned here. Well, then we have the Joab saga ending with the second trumpet. And uh, notice that it's the Joab saga because Joab makes it about himself. David wants to send out Amasa. Amasa, remember, was the one that Absalom had replaced Joab with as the leader of the army. And when David came back as a judgment on Joab for killing Absalom, but also as, a, as an olive branch, David says, you can keep your general. I'm not, not only am I not going to kill him, I'm going to keep him as the chief general. So Amasa is the general of Israel. He's sent out for a three-day mission, and we're not told why he failed to be back in time. Was he lazy? Couldn't, could he just not get anyone to follow him? Maybe everyone wanted to stay home. Whatever the case, he's late. So David skips over over him, wants to send out the men that are right there, present, the mighty men. Notice that the text calls them Joab's men. But he skips over Joab and goes to Abishai to lead. He's making a point to Joab. But does Joab accept the point? No. They get on the road. Here comes Amasa. And then we have this uh, whole thing with the sword slipping. It's something like this. Notice it's all sleight of hand. That's what this is telling us. Joab gets off his horse. Oops! I, I dropped my sword. How clumsy. Presumably he picks it up with his left hand in a non-threatening way. Oh. How silly of me. I, I dropped my sword. And then he goes forward, but like any good sleight of hand, you distract from the one hand by doing something with the other hand. Other hand out, the right hand. The right hand's the sword arm. That's what everyone would expect to be the threatening arm. And now it's held out to cup the man's face so he could go in for the uh, Middle Eastern uh, kiss on the cheek. 
And Amasa doesn't notice that Joab picked up the sword with his left hand and got some. That, that, that's what we're being told. It's a little complicated the way it's worded, but that's what is happening. Joab does what he had done to Abner, Saul's uncle. He kills the person who is supposed to replace him. In both instances, it is a man who had made peace with David, who had bowed the knee to the Lord's anointed, and who had been uh, put in a position of honor by David. And that threatened Joab. So even though Joab in Samuel is the most avid supporter of David, he's only the supporter of David on his own terms. If I am second in command. And so he kills the second innocent person. It's a little different than Absalom, isn't it? Absalom's a rebel. Sheba's a rebel. Both of them are against David. Both of them, it's in the context of warfare. Absalom, at least, it's a maybe still questionable action. But it's different from the cold-hearted murder that Abner and, uh, and Amasa receive. And then, all of a sudden, Joab's just in command again, isn't he? His, his soldier stands there next to the body and says, Whoever's for Joab... It, don't you like how this is worded? Whoever follows Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. Is that what David would have said? David replaced him with two other people. But the army's now behind Joab again. Apparently Abishai was either too scared to do anything, uh, and wouldn't you be? Or he loved his brother so much that he wanted him in control. Either way, Joab's in charge again. They get to the city. He has this meeting with the, the wise woman. I'm not criticizing the wise woman. I think she probably did at least from an earthly perspective, the wisest thing. Um, But notice some of the the wording here, and we'll unpack it a a little bit in a minute, or come back to the thought in a minute. But this wise woman uh, talks to Joab about the inheritance of the Lord and how Joab is going to threaten that inheritance. We'll come back to that in a minute. But, but then there's that divine irony here. Joab acting so offended. Far be it from me to swallow up or destroy as he talks to this woman with, woman with, with blood all over him still from Amasa, right? I, w- I would never think to destroy or swallow up. And even the wording he chooses, think of how often that swallow up in scripture is used about death. Death swallows up. Such irony from a man like that. We're often offended by the things that are actually true about us, aren't we? I would not. How could you think that of me? I don't know. Your blood has, your sword has blood on it. Seems like a logical thought to the wise woman. But um, anyway, they, they kill Sheba, throw the thing. He blows the trumpet, goes home, and he's just in charge. He's the captain of Israel 
again. And all of that makes me ache for what we read about in 1 Corinthians 15. Ache for that other trumpet blast. A trumpet blast not from a a bloodthirsty or proud, arrogant sinner, but from the rightful king. It's exhausting reading 2 Samuel. It's exhausting getting this far into all this rebellion. And we long, we long for it. And the good news is, that trumpet's going to come. It will be blasted. And the king will come with justice and with comfort for his people. That's, that's good news. David, David seems to be sitting on his throne impotently. But the true king is sitting on his throne waiting for the right time. And remember what he's doing to all of those bloodthirsty, proud men as he sits on his throne. He sits in heaven and he laughs them to scorn because he's coming. He gets the last trumpet. Not Joab and not Sheba. Christ will come and we we ache for that moment How do we live waiting for that moment? Wisdom keeps popping up. Wisdom comes up in this text. It's so often earthly wisdom. Earthly wisdom is all about the end justifies the means. If it works, right? If it works, David will overlook how it happened. And don't we so often live that way as well? Well, if it works then surely Christ has to accept it. If we just come up with the technique that, you know, we, we could make evangelism that way. We could make worship uh, bringing people in that way. We could make dozens of things in our everyday lives that way. If it works, Jesus has to be happy with me. The king has to accept me as his soldier. Well, David, David might have seemed to be accepting Joab based on worldly wisdom, based on expedience, based on other worldly wisdom things. Like like worldly wisdom also is survival in a vicious world. Whatever you got to do to survive in a vicious world, right? The world says that's wisdom. Dale Ralph Davis tells us that that kind of wisdom should leave us with kind of a a sinking feeling in our guts. And this is his comment. Wisdom that is not mixed with sanctification is lethal. That's it, isn't it? Wisdom that is not mixed with sanctification is lethal. We need to learn that lesson. Each one of us. Because every day we're faced with decisions and there's the expedient thing, there's the worldly wisdom thing, there's the survival thing, and there's the sanctification thing. And that's what defines whether it's wisdom in the eyes of God or or not. So as we wait for Christ's return, we want biblical wisdom. What is biblical wisdom? 
a definition I like, and I honestly can't remember if I came up with it or if I read it somewhere, uh, but I, I have it written at several points in my Bible. And just this week, after I started writing this on this piece of paper, Bethel told me she'd run across it in her Bible from uh, five years ago. And uh, that made me quite happy because it's a good definition for biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom is sound doctrine rightly applied. Sound doctrine rightly applied. That's, that's biblical wisdom. And that's why biblical wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. Think about it. What, what is the right knowledge? Well, the right knowledge of God leads, rightly applied, it leads us to reverence and awe for this God whom we know. A fool says in his heart, there is no God. But if you look upon the true God as he presents himself, the only response that we ought to have is falling on our faces and groveling. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Woe is me, I'm undone, I'm of a sinful people. Biblical wisdom is sound doctrine rightly applied, and it starts with knowing God. It starts, uh, knowing God leads us to wisdom starting with the fear of the Lord. O. Palmer Robertson writes, uh, fear of the Lord is not an indefinite terror of an unknown God that has no capacity to bring life and blessing. Rather, only as a person knows, fears, and trusts the one living Yahweh, the Lord of the covenant, can he expect blessings. You want blessings. Biblical wisdom says start with fear. That's, the ble- that's where blessing begins. Fear, but not just any fear, not terror of the unknown, but reverence for the known God. And when we bring ourselves back to that over and over again, I think there are a couple of things we can take away. As we, we think about living in this brutal and vicious and divided world, one that is no less so than when Joab and David and Sheba walked on it. Well, there are a couple of things we can say to govern our wisdom. Fear of the Lord, wisdom first would say to us as we look at 2 Samuel 20, it would tell us, be warned. Biblical wisdom with the fear of the Lord says, be warned. The king is coming and there will be absolute justice. We even get a little sample of that in David. We don't don't actually know why David didn't judge Joab most of us assume it's because he's scared of him. And, and that could be true. He's a frightening man. And who knows if the army would have gone with David or Joab at this point. Joab has made some, from an earthly perspective, wiser moves than David. David has made some rather uh, bad mistakes. And so maybe it's that, but it could be something else. But here's the more important thing. Joab thinks... Joab thinks that he's gotten away with it. But David's biding time because his last command to his son Solomon 
is to execute Joab. And in First First Kings, First Kings chapter two, we find Solomon do this specifically for the murder of Abner and the murder of Amasa. See, Joab thought he got away with it, but the king was biding his time. David may have been biding his time for a sinful or a weak reason. We don't know. But the reality is it points us ahead because Christ is biding his time. And justice will come in this life or the next. It will certainly come in the next. And so often we allow ourselves to be pulled into worldly wisdom and the viciousness and the divisions of this world thinking that that's the only way to survive now and thinking that there's no consequence for going down that path. Maybe everyone else in the churches of Christ in America are going down that path and they are doing fine. And God's wisdom would tell us, be warned, the king is coming. He will blast his trumpet. He will judge Joab. If Joab didn't repent before he died, much worse things than what Solomon did to him will happen. And the same is true for us. So we need to be warned. Flee from the wrath to come. Biblical wisdom, fear of the Lord wisdom, also says be secure. Be secure. Remember that wise woman, she makes the comment, would you wipe out the inheritance of the Lord? Joab can't wipe out the inheritance of the Lord. Joab on his biggest day cannot erase the promises of God. I'm not saying this woman was unfaithful. I'm just saying so often we make that mistake. We think if we don't take some action now, negotiate with the Joabs of the church now, the then where will we even be? And the reality is, we can't negotiate with the promises of God to Joab. We can't bend in to their rule, the violence and the the division at the expense of the promises of God, thinking that we're somehow keeping the promises of God safe that way. Be secure, says wisdom. The one who promised it, the God you know and fear, He promised it. Joab can't erase that. Joab is not bigger than Yahweh God or his son Jesus Christ. What can separate you from the promises of God? Romans tells us this, doesn't it? What can separate you from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing. Not Joab. Not the U.S. government, not, not, uh, not false teachers in the church. Nothing can separate you from the promises of God, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So be secure, says wisdom. If you know this God, you fear him, then you live in a way that expresses that you are secure in him, as well as warned and repenting. And then third, flowing out of that security, 
We are to be comforted. The fear of the Lord calls us to a life of comfort. And here I think of of David with these, these concubines. Whether we put the best spin on David or the worst, either way, those women, those women probably never felt fully vindicated. They probably never in this life escaped the looks. The scorn. Remember, they were taken out in public on a roof in front of all of Israel, all of Jerusalem. David can build them a nice little sheltered house to hide away in, but they probably never felt fully vindicated or clean. But fear of the Lord, wisdom gives real comfort because whatever David did or didn't do well for them. And whatever he could or couldn't have accomplished if he tried for them. If they were true believers, their vindication is coming. And their Savior is coming, who will wipe every tear from their eyes. Who will present them to his Father with the rest of his church as pure and spotless. So that God the Father does not look on these women as having been made filthy and shameful, but rather made pure and glorious in his Son. So the fear of the Lord would lead us to be warned, to be secure. And to be comforted. We live in a world that's not unlike this. It's still full of violence and division and pride and arrogance and, and setting ourselves first however we can. We live in that world and our call is to be in the fear of the Lord, in wisdom that is better than let's cut off his head and throw it over the wall. But looks beyond that to the King eternal, immortal, to God who alone is wise, and hears from him warning, security, and comfort. As your heart aches for his return, let the fear of the Lord lead you to continue trusting in Christ for his goodness and his grace. And then wisdom does one other thing. Calls on you to pray with me right now. A simple prayer. As our hearts ache for that trumpet. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly come. Amen.